0: The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at Man, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. So you can ask my wife, but I can be overly ambitious in projects or in things I'm gonna do. I'm sure I am the only man in the history of humankind who has ever done that. Uh, The pond slash fire pit is a really good example of one weekend. I literally looked out in my backyard and said, we should make a fire pit, thinking that it was going to be a weekend project. Three months later, 200 hours of sweat equity and muck and junk, and I realized this was substantially harder than I thought it was going to be. All right, And that's a lot of my life. Um, This series, Identity, is one of those examples where I... Only once we got into it did I realize what was going on around me. Uh, Last week, I made a joke about there were just being landmines all around me because we were talking about race and culture. Well, this week, we're talking about sexuality. So we can just double those landmines. Um, And so we're going to start off and we're going to pray and just ask that God is the one who is leading this conversation. And I would ask you guys to pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a God who created us, you designed us uniquely uh, both as individuals, but also as gender. Lord, we pray that as we engage your word today, as we engage what you're doing, Lord, that we're able to celebrate, Lord, that we're able to repent, uh, Lord, and ultimately that we end up following you a little bit closer uh, because we engage you. Lord, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. So one of our members at church is a professor at Concordia University, specifically to uh, DCEs, or what would be more normally known as youth pastors. And he and I were having a conversation uh, a couple months ago, and he was talking about uh, this next generation of youth, so the middle schoolers and the high schoolers we have now. the, The three most burning questions that they have for the church were around sexuality, race and culture, and mental illness so much so that if the church couldn't actually address these issues, if the church couldn't lean in to these very complicated, messy, broken topics, that this next generation of youth actually didn't find much value in church if we couldn't lean into these issues. And so that's where this series of identity came from. And last week, again, we talked about race and culture. This week, we're talking about sexuality. Um, and I'm joking, but I am serious also that this is a topic that is messy. It is scary. Quite frankly, as a pastor, I don't really want to preach on it, right? There are so many different competing worldviews that are out there. There are so many different competing worldviews in the church overall. In fact, there are competing worldviews in this room right now. In fact, if I asked 20 of you, what are your views on sexuality? I would probably get 20 different answers. All right? so the question is, how are we going to engage it today? And we're going to start with a simple ground rule, that this is not my best, right, right, maybe, oh, thank you. Okay, I got it. Um, The ground rule is we are going to use scripture and the story of God to frame this discussion. We're going to look at this topic, not through my thinking, not through what we see on the news. We're going to look through, all right, God what is your lens? What does your narrative say about this topic? And then once we have some ground rules and some ground truth, then we'll start to engage with what's happening in the world, what's happening within the church, and ultimately what we're supposed to do about it, right? So, starting with scripture. This comes from Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that he may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We talked about this verse a little bit last week. This idea of the imago deo, that God implanted in both male and female his reflection, his identity. Right, And in that, what we see is that God created us to be co-stewards of this beautiful playground called earth he created. All right, so you start off in Genesis, and God creates everything. And he says, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. And then he creates man and woman, and he says, now this is going to be a little different. You're going to be different than the birds. You're going to be different than the fish. You're going to be different than the trees. He so says, I'm going to put my identity inside of you. He says, I'm going to put my reflection inside of each and every one of you, and it goes out of the way to say this is not a male versus female thing. There isn't the one that's really like God and the one that's kind of like God. Right? Now he says, male and female, he created them. And we were called then to be stewards or managers of the world. He put us in this giant playground. He said, I love you. I built this for you. And now I want you to take care of this world. I want you to steward this world. He said, I want you to do it Together as equal co-partners in what God is doing down here. So that's the truth number one that's going to frame this discussion today, right? Truth one, truth two. This comes from Genesis 2. Then God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, we've been talking about this a few times over the last couple months, but this word helper is not a servant, right? It doesn't say God created Adam and Adam needed a mate. Right? Or Adam needed a cook. Or Adam needed someone to do his laundry. That is not what this word helper means. If you get into the, uh, the Hebrew, if you get into the original language, what God is saying is, I'm going to create someone that is going to complete you. Right? Remember, uh, what was that? Tommy McGuire, you complete me? All right? is that, I think that's where that movie came from. But this idea that man by himself wasn't complete. And so God created something to essentially complement him to fill him out. Think of like a yin and a yang symbol, right? They go together, and what we see in Scripture, what we see in the truth of how God designed this, is that he designed men and women to complement one another. We were built for it. We were built for community. We're going to see what sin does to community really quick, but at the end of the day, none of us are built as an island. We're not our best when we're by ourselves. And so God designs these two genders to complement one another and to bring one another out. And we see that ultimately in its ultimate fruition in marriage, but it happens in all kinds of ways, right? We have brothers, we have sisters, we have friends that are the opposite gender, and they see things differently than we do, and they experience life differently than we do. And it doesn't make them better or worse. In fact, when it's at its best, their differences bring out the best in us, right? And so again, you have this God creating co partners, co stewards of his creation, but then he says, You are going to be distinct. And in fact, you're going to be built for one another to bring out the best in one another. Right? Genesis 1, co stewards. Genesis 2, complementary components. Then we get to Genesis 3. This is when we rebel. This is when we tell God, you know what, we've got a better idea. And that rebellion has a consequence. That rebellion separates us from each other and us from God. God says to the woman he says I will make your pain in childbearing very severe with painful labor you will give birth to children your desire will be for your husband and he will rule all over you we go from there being no shame in chapter 2 to this ten- contentious relationship in chapter 3 all of a sudden the husband and the wife these complementary parts that are supposed to work so well together now there is dissidence there now there's a brokenness there now all of a sudden your desire is going to be for your husband You want what he has, and he is going to rule over you. There is going to be a subservient relationship. That's not in Genesis 2. That only happens once sin enters the picture, right? This brokenness. And then he says to Adam, because you listened to your wife, you ate from the tree of which I commanded you. You must not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thistles and thorns for you. You will eat the plants from the field By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Genesis 1, we're co-stewards, co-partners in what God is doing in the world. Genesis 2, we get built to complement one another, to bring out the best in one another. Genesis 3, sin enters the pincher, and it all goes to hell, literally. Hell is separation from God. It breaks down relationships. It breaks down everything. And sin ends up corrupting every aspect of our existence. It corrupts our relationship to God. It corrupts how we talk to him, how we pray to him, how we hear him. It corrupts how we talk to one another. It corrupts our physical bodies, right? From dust you are taken, guess what? You're going to die. It corrupts our relationships. And it corrupts our sexuality as we talk about what we do with sexuality in 2019 and beyond, we have to start with the understanding it's worse than we know. It's broken. It's messy. It's complicated. It's tangled. And it's affected all of us. And Really, you're going to hear this a lot today, but all of us, Sin doesn't pick and choose. It infects and it distorts and it corrupts. And that, that's how we have to start, understanding both the truth of God's word, the truth of how we were designed, and the truth that it's just broken. Right? And we see that brokenness in both how the world and how the organized institutional church has addressed this issue. Because both sides right? Sometimes as the church, it's easy to throw the world under the bus, like, well, they don't have Jesus, so of course they're broken. Okay, well, guess what? The church has Jesus, and we're just as broken, right? Because here's the problem with the church. We are just as misinformed, just as broken, just as sinful as the people outside of the church, right? Sin doesn't just pick and choose. It's not like, oh, you got Jesus. You never struggle with anything else ever again, That isn't how our faith works. That isn't how God works. And sin is more insidious than that. And so we're going to go through and we're going to look at some examples, both from the world and from the church, of how sin's insidiousness and how that corruption has actually darkened our ability to have a conversation about sexuality, right? Because the church, we have a really hit or miss track record with it. When you look at the early church, when you look at the Gospels, and when you look at the epistles— it was so countercultural to the time of how Jesus treated women. Right? At that time, if you were not married, if you were not in your father's household, as a woman, you had no rights. They all went through the males. Right? And so if your husband died, if your father died, and no one else in your family was willing to advocate for you, you were essentially out of community. You had no resources. You couldn't own anything. You had no dignity. You had no real value. Jesus comes along and he changes all of that. All of a sudden, he's inviting these women into ministry. When you go through the Gospels, the only people it ever talks about who financially supported Jesus, the original investors in the kingdom of God, it says were women. And then in the epistles, once the church starts going, once you start building these church plans, you have Paul saying things like this. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. And so he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says, your primary identity The thing that you are going to build your foundation on is on Jesus, and that is universal to both male and female, and that's how the church starts. And so you're like, awesome! The church is doing great! What ends up happening is the church begins to become institutionalized, and it starts to be co-opted by Roman culture. And again, in Rome, women didn't have the same rights as they did in the church, and so slowly but surely what you see in the life and the history of the church is the church starts to mirror the culture. And so by the time you get to around 200, 300 AD, generation three, generation four of the church, our views on gender and our views on women all of a sudden start to look a lot like Genesis three. You will desire your husband's position and he's going to rule over you. And then you look through the life of the church and there is this tension between the truth of what God is doing, the truth and the gospel of what Jesus is doing and how the church as an institution handles gender. Our track record is not perfect. And if we want to have an honest conversation about sexuality, we have to be honest about that. But then you go to the next side. You have now a world that is trying to deny or limit the differences between men and women and saying that we're completely interchangeable. And again, that isn't in tune with both the narrative of Scripture, the truth of what God is doing, and it's not even in truth with our experience. We are different, and that's okay. It's our own sinfulness, it's our own brokenness that starts to make those differences. Well, this is better than this, right? And so we have these two competing narratives. We have a church that often has co-opted the cultures that have come before it, which oftentimes actually are subjugating women. And you have a world that then reacts and swings the pendulum in the exact opposite direction and says, so let's just pretend there are no differences. We're the exact same. We're interchangeable. And that is not in tune with what God is doing. That is not in tune with what we are called as Christians to be about, right? And again, the pendulum keeps swinging, but then we get to sexuality. And I've been saying this for a while now, but I feel every year it rings deeper. But America doesn't have a homosexuality problem. America doesn't have a a transgender problem. America doesn't have an LGBTQ problem. America has a sexuality problem. And it's affected all of us. Everyone in this room doesn't view sexuality purely. Full stop. In the church... In the world, we can think we do, right? Well, the Bible says this, and so I understand it 100%. No, you don't. None of us do. I don't. The world says, no, this is what sexuality is, and we understand it 100%. No, they, no, no, they don't. The effects of sin, the insidiousness, the brokenness, the entanglement, it is messier and worse than we give it credit for. And until we as a church are able to admit that, Until we, as followers of Christ, are able to be honest, you know what? We're all broken. So I'm not supposed to pick up the stone. We're not going to know how to actually have a conversation. We're not going to know how to actually engage. Because again, the problem is worse than we know. And it's infected all of us. Differently, but it's affected all of us. Which then leads us to the last counter-narrative. In Scripture, God creates sexuality. Mankind were the ones who came up with sexual identity. You see, whenever we build our identity on anything other than Christ, we end up down paths we're not supposed to go. So if your primary identity is in your sexual identity, it's gonna lead you in the wrong spot. In the same way, if your primary identity is in your politics, you're gonna end up in a spot you shouldn't be. If it's in your race, you're gonna end up in a spot you shouldn't be. If it's in the language you speak or the country you're from, if your identity is in anything other than Christ, it is sinking sand. It's why he came in the first place. He showed up because he knew our own identities, our own brokenness would always lead us in the same spot. So Jesus enters the story And he says, I will fight for you. I will die for you. I will build a foundation that you can stand on. But that's Christ or bust. Any other identity that the world tells you, any other identity that the church tells you, other than Christ, will leave you in places, will leave you separated from true community, will leave you with broken thinking, The problem of sin is worse than we know. But the good news, the gospel, is that we have a God who specializes in broken, messy, entangled situations. So that leads us to the question then, okay, if that's true, well, so what? What do we do now? What's the next step? And I'm going to be completely honest with you. My goal here today is not to change your thinking. My goal here today is not to convince you of something, to say you think this way now and I want you to think this way after. My goal is to point you to Jesus. Jesus began his ministry by saying this. He said, "Um, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. If you want to engage the topic of sexuality, if you want to figure out the right next step, the first and foremost thing is every single person in this room, myself at the front of the list, has to repent. To repent means to turn. To repent means I don't have it figured out. No one in this room has it all figured out. And so as we go from here, to be honest and say, you know what? If you think you do, God, I have to repent. If you realize you don't have it all figured out, Repent. Turn and say, God, I need your kingdom to enter into this situation. That's what your kingdom come has drawn near means. It literally means the reign of God, the power of God. And so to begin this conversation, to begin this journey by just saying, God, I, I don't have it all together. I don't have it all together in my life, and I certainly don't have it together, all together in someone else's life. And so we as a church need to Repent. We as individuals need to repent. But then, Jesus doesn't end his ministry there. Immediately after saying, repent, the kingdom of God has come near, he starts inviting people into something. He starts saying, come follow me. He invites people into relationship with him. And then, as we as Christians, that's our call. That's our invitation. That we then get to follow him. And say, you know what, God, I don't know. This is way messier than I thought it was. This is way more broken than I thought it was. I need you to guide and teach me. And to follow him in that, wherever he guides and teaches you, to let his word be the truth, to let his gospel, his good news, be the one that's our compass bearing as we go forward. And that's hard and it's messy. And there are going to be times you're going to read something and you're going to be like, God, I don't know if I believe this. Guess what? His apostles didn't always believe him. And he doesn't cast them out. He doesn't say, oh, you don't believe this? Well, then you're out of here. No, he teaches them. He trains them. He guides them. He forgives them. And then he takes them on that next step. And he says, you're not alone anymore. I still have a plan for you. I still have a plan for these situations. And while it's way too complicated for us to solve, it is not too complicated for our God to solve. Our God is bigger than this. Our God is bigger than the mess. That's the whole point of the cross and the resurrection. That death, our biggest problem, he took care of. So these other problems that are messy and broken and complicated, he says, if you follow me, we'll work on it together. Both in your own life and in the lives of the people that we get to encounter. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Then come and follow. And we'll work it out as we go we're going to have an opportunity to actually repent. We're going to have an opportunity to reflect on this God that is calling us to follow. We're going to go into a time of worship and then into a time where communion, community union, where we begin by saying, take and eat, this is broken for you. Take and drink, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's a time both to repent and to follow and connect. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father God, you are a good God. You are a God who fights for his people. You are a God who invites us both to admit that we don't have it all figured out, but also then to come and follow you one step at a time. Oh God, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen.